Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Mark 7 is where we're at, if you didn't catch that from the prayer. Jesus' fame in the book of Mark has quickly gone from zero to 100 miles an hour. His fame is spread everywhere. He's fed 5,000 people. He's healed. He's cast demons out. He's cast legions of demons out. Um, the spiritual excitement for Jesus is palatable in the book of Mark. There's an enthusiasm. People are running to see him. There's an immediacy to everything in the book, and we have a growing envy of the established religious folks. The folks that had it all on lockdown don't feel like their lockdown's working so good anymore. Um, and it eats at them from the core, and we've had a couple interactions. Uh, as we get to today, it's like Mark starting a new section of the book. The first section of the book was really him training his disciples. There's still more for them to learn, but part of what they need to learn is how to deal with these established religious folks that think they know everything. Um, and Mark turns to how Jesus deals with the religious elite and how he deals with people in contrast to them. So, we start in um, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. So another official delegation. They're down inspecting and analyzing. Um, really, they already decided in past chapters, they want to stop Jesus. They want to stop this iterant teacher from doing what he's doing. Um, and there's nothing wrong to evaluate teachers that pop up in the religious world. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. We should all be doing that. We should, if a new teacher rises up, gets to be popular on YouTube, we should go with a critical mind saying, are they teaching the word or not? So Jesus is, the problem with the Pharisees and scribes isn't that they're trying to stop false prophets. It's that they're doing it, but they're not using the word of God to do it. So we have some things to learn from that. They are commanded by the Old Testament to seek out and identify false prophets and get rid of them. In one level, the Pharisees are doing their job. But they're doing their job using the human traditions, which is where this goes. Verse 2, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews don't eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they've received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. And then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? How dare you? This isn't unwashed hands like they got dirt all over their hands, and we're not talking about physical cleaning. All of these are ceremonial washings or cleansings. So it's assumed that you wash your hands before you eat because it's disgusting to eat food with dirty hands. But that's not what we're talking about here. In fact, this is really fun research. They would do a set of rote prayers. They had an actual prayer book around these ceremonial cleansings at this point in history that has nothing to do with the Old Testament. They would use one and a half eggshells of water and they would pour it over their hands, and they would do it at the fingertips and let the water drip down to their wrists, and then they would wash with their fist proper, doing rote prayers the whole time. Then to finish, they would turn their hands the other direction, and they would take one and a half eggshells of water, pour it on their wrists this direction. It was a big show, and, and, it, and there was a whole ceremonial process to it, and the second time they do it, they do it from wrist to fingertips, all of this making them ceremonially clean to eat the food with. Even worse, it had to be annoying to eat with them because they'd do this between every course. <laughs> so eating a meal became this giant religious ceremony. And they're doing all this on, on two particular passages from the Old Testament. So I, I think it's important to read those. Well, yeah, Exodus 40, verse 12. And you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and wash them with water. That's the verse. From that, they built out all of these traditions about how they do things. 
And so the tradition of the elders that's mentioned here would have been known by anybody who knew Jewish people. So even the Roman citizens whose Mark's kind of writing to. But I want to point out that in verse 4, he adds this list of washing cups, pitchers, copper vessels, couches, all ceremonial. You had to even wash the seat you were sitting on. So everything about the process was clean. To the Romans, this looked ridiculous. To any normal person, this looks ridiculous. So Mark, in a way, is kind of introducing how Jesus handled all this hyper-religiousness of the Jews. You guys do it all your way, but it doesn't. It, it's adding to God's word considerably. Um, from the Jewish perspective, and, and again, trying to get all sides here, just a couple quotes from the Talmud and the Mishnah about how important these washings were. Again, as Christians, we've kind of moved past all these traditions, but at this point in history... Rabbi Eliezer said, quote, he who expounds the scriptures in opposition to the tradition of the elders has no share in the world to come. If you didn't do the tradition of the elders, you were going to burn in hell. Like, that's how significant this was. Rabbi Yose says, in sins as much as he who eats with unwashed hands is he that lieth with a harlot. So if you don't do this when you eat, it's the same thing as getting a prostitute. And for them, the sin level was identical. The reason is, and by the way, going and getting a, par- a harlot under God's law is worthy of stoning or excommunication in the church, right? These are major things. So to not wash your hands was an offense because if you're a rabbi and a teacher of the word of God, you have to do everything to the glory of God, even eating your food. So these religions were worth stoning somebody over. It was the way they were identifying Jesus can't be a real prophet because he's not doing the tradition of the elders. So he's not a rabbi you should listen to. The Talmud records, again, this was really fun research this week. Here's the Talmud. It is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict scripture itself. It was worse to contradict rabbis than it was to contradict the word of God. That's in the Talmud. So you think about the tradition of the elders and how important it was, and you'd say like, oh, that's just really kind of, the Jews have taken it way too far. Eh, but so have the, like, we have religious traditions under the Christian faith that do this too. It's worth to, worse to contradict the Pope than it is to contradict the scriptures. The Pope can contradict the scriptures, but the Catholic Church isn't supposed to contradict the Pope. Mormonism does this. They claim the name of Jesus Christ, but it's worth, worse to contradict the elders or the brothers in New York than it is to contradict the Bible itself. So we have traditions that have gone so far into this kind of thinking that they're really not Christian anymore. They're not following Christ in the Word of God. They're following the traditions of their church and how they do things. This is why it's important. We don't worship the, the dove. We don't worship Calvary Chapel. We worship Jesus. And at, the, the, it, at some level, we stick to that no matter what the, the title or the denomination is and how to do it. Therefore, we're not at odds with other people that study the scriptures and do that. So in one of our traditions is we don't go and attack other Christian communities as long as they're sticking to the word of God. But if you start telling me that I need to bow before a statue, I have a problem with that because the God says don't do that. Um, so just a couple thoughts on that. Um, there, there is an idea that this idea of converting a religion, we saw it with Jeroboam in the Old Testament, like he's going to do Judaism, but he's going to do it his own way. At a small level, I just want to point out, this is the original sin. This is what they were talking about in the garden when the Satan says, God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. That humans think they know good and evil better than God does. It's a presumption that we make. It's the core essence of the first sin. It's selfishness. I like doing religion my way, and my way is a better decision than God's way. And when we do that, we never bend or submit to God's way. We never have to change anything about ourselves if we just make up our own way of doing it. And it's the original sin. If the scribes say your right hand is our left and our left hand is our right, we are to believe them. Another quote from the Talmud. This is a strange thing, and we're starting to see this even in non-religious belief systems and worldviews, that if the people in charge say this is what that is, we have to just believe them. This is the core of communism. It's one of the critiques of Brave New World in 1984, is world systems saying what's true is what we say is true. If we say two plus two is five, you need to say that that's the case or you're against us, and there's a problem. 
So the same sin that the Pharisees are committing here is in the modern age too. It hasn't gone anywhere. We've just changed the names behind the belief systems. But it all stays the same. Pharisees walk up and say, if we say you need to wash your hands, you need to wash your hands. So how does Jesus respond to this is a a pathway for us to respond to it too. He answered and said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? He calls them hypocrites. As it is written, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the traditions of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. You see how Jesus, knowing the Talmud and the Mishnah, is using that language back at them? You guys are saying you're more important than the scriptures. You're not. And he backs them off of that. This wouldn't make them happy, by the way. This would not be making buddies with them. Jesus evaluates them, and they thought they were evaluating him. And he comes back and he evaluates their entire worldview. He responds with the word of God, quoting Isaiah. He uses the scriptures to counter this stuff. Amazingly, the scriptures are entirely consistent with themselves, but they're often not consistent with human-made traditions. And, that, and therefore, you can go at it. He uses the word hypocrites. Um, I think we've brought this up before, but the word hypocrite in the Greek means an actor or a pretender. Uh, specifically, it was the word in, when an actor would put a mask on their face and go out on stage pretending to be somebody they're not. They were a hypocrite. And it was a positive term on a stage. It's not a positive term for a religious practitioner. There's nothing authentic about them. They're pretending to be something they're not. And they're wearing masks. Jesus, in other passages, calls them wolves. They're coming into the fellowship of Jesus, and they're, and they're coming in trying to find fault with it. And, and even worse, they're trying to pull people away from that fellowship. And this is tough when you run into friends and family that want to pull you away from something that blesses you. And so Jesus takes this kind of religi- religiosity, and he pushes back. Roman readers, would they're... When they would read this passage, if Mark's writing to that audience, they would have more affinity with Jesus' perspective because they've been thinking this forever. You guys are super religious, but you don't actually take care of your people. Like, what kind of, I might as well go to the Temple of Saturn and the Temple of Juno. I might as well go worship at my temples because you're just as fake as anybody else. This is tough when we as Christians have friends and family that have had bad experiences at dead churches. No, I went to a church and there was this and this and there was a hypocrite and the pastor got into trouble over this and all that sort of thing. And all we can say is we agree with you. It's fake. And that's a really difficult position because we want to be glorifying God throughout the church all over the place. But you do have situations like the Pharisees where they're claiming Yahweh, but they're not doing Yahweh. If one's self-defined righteousness causes an indignation at other people, that's a weak faith. And I'm trying to get this out of my own heart. If the way I do things makes me look at other people and judge them, then I don't have a very strong faith. If I have a strong faith, I simply want others to enjoy it too because I'm blessed by it. I want others to be blessed by it. But it doesn't get me upset when I see somebody doing it differently. It just makes me sad. right? My reaction isn't indignation. It's, oh, you guys are really missing out on something way better. And so you try to share that there's a different way to do it. Or you can be confounded, like why would you keep doing something that doesn't help instead of doing something that does help and does heal people? He says, their heart is far from me. You know, there's this idea that this happens, I, I have this happen all the time. Have you ever been worshiping, hopefully not today, but you're worshiping but your heart's just not in it? Your heart's far from God. You're doing the things of God but your heart's far away from God. And, I, and again, this isn't like a horrid thing it happens. It's real. And I love how the Bible just takes the layers off and we look at real humanity. Have you ever been praying to God, but you don't feel close to God? Your heart is far from him. You're, you're studying, you're praying, even when you tithe, but you're doing the motions of a religious practice, but your heart isn't where it needs to be. You know, in those kind of situations, it's far more important to get yourself in the right place with your heart than to continue doing the religious behaviors back up a step and just get your relationship with the Lord right. And then for a lot of people, this lets go of things that they're burdening themselves with. Well, I have to do this. I have to do that. I have to be on this thing. I have to be serving and doing this. Or if your heart needs to get closer to the Lord, take a break. 
You know, go talk to the people that you're responsible to and say, hey, I need a couple months off because I just got to get my heart back in the right place. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, that's the very definition of legalism. You're making your rules as important as God's rules. Not every way that we do things has to do with right and wrong. For example, how do we do baptism? There's no right or wrong to that. There's just, we should be doing baptism. How we select music for worship, how we do worship music, there's no right or wrong to it. There's just preferences. But the commandment is we should be worshiping. Uh, Whether or not a preacher should be standing up or sitting down when he teaches the word of God, there's no right or wrong to that. But the commandment is we should be teaching the word of God. You see see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And this is where it gets really dangerous. What kind of clothing should we be wearing? How should we be washing our hands while we eat? What kind of building should we be in? None of these things are outlined in the scriptures, but they do become part of our traditions. A lot of times people have trouble when they move from a house church to a building church because they liked the house church so much. They liked the environment and the feel of it. And so it's tough to make that. Or even worse, if you ever moved from a coffee shop church to a church without a coffee shop in it, well, now you just lost your coffee. And that's, that's a struggle for some people. That can be a really tough thing, but it happens. So we get an Old Testament image exemplified by Jesus, extended into Acts, and explained by Paul. We can be pretty sure that's how a church should operate. And again, I'll say those four things again. When you're looking at a church or church behavior or practice, is there an Old Testament image of it? Has it exemplified by Jesus? Has it been extended into acts like practiced by the disciples? And is it explained and outlined by Paul? And if you can hit all four of those things, you can be pretty dang sure that should be part of what we do in the church. But if you take everything that's out there and reduce it down, study the word, fellowship with the saints, eating with the saints, worshiping with the saints and praying with the saints. That's what you can pare it down to. That said, as we follow Jesus, we find that all of those things get easier to do and our hands get cleaner and cleaner and cleaner, spiritually speaking, as we do the things God asks us to do. And we've had a lot of conversations this week because we've been, it's been amazing just the, conver- the conversations Steph and I have been in with folks. You just get this thing that, With good intentions, we share those things that are a blessing to us. Like, here's a method for prayer that we really enjoy, and you should try it. But don't take that as doctrine. Take that as this is a method that works really well. And therefore, if I can see it that way from the start, then it's really easy for me to not judge somebody when they have a practice that's a blessing to them that I have no interest in. I don't have to judge it. I just don't have to do it myself. I don't have to feel obligated to do it that way. So... All things have to stand up to the word of God. And Jesus continues to show that contradiction to the elders. Let's look at verse 9. Because he kind of goes on with the teaching here. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you can keep your tradition. So he gives them an example. For Moses said, he checks with the Old Testament. Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. Well, that's a serious crime then, isn't it? But, verse 11, you say, if a man says to his father and mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is a gift from God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you've handed down, and many such things you do. I like the add on there. It's like, you do a ton of this stuff. So they accuse him of not washing hands properly, and he turns around and makes an accusation back. You know what you do? You abandon your parents. Breaking one of the Ten Commandments. Here's what Corbin, this is, again, these things are just fascinating. He actually says that is a gift from God, explaining to kind of a Gentile audience what Corbin is. Corbin's not in the Old Testament anywhere. So let's not confuse this with actual Old Testament teaching. But Corbin was a tradition that had been developed by the first century. The Jewish people still, they still practice this today. So I can say that I'm going to give some things to the Lord. Like, for instance, we can say, you know what, our basement space, that's for the Lord. We're going to commit that. And the Jewish people would say, then that's Corbin. So if we've dedicated something that we have and say that that's Corbin, then that belongs to the Lord literally. It's no longer mine to give away because I've given it away. A a lot like tithe. We still practice a Corbin concept with tithe. When we give tithe, we don't keep strings attached to it. We just say this is for the use for the kingdom, and we trust that it's going to be used for the kingdom. And it's no longer ours to, to, to dictate what happens to it. 
So Corbin for the Pharisees and the scribes was everything they owned. They dedicated their whole life to the Lord and everything belonged to the Lord. So when their parents were older and couldn't provide for themselves, they'd say, oh, you can't stay with us. Our house is Corbin. Oh, you don't get any, we don't need to feed you and provide for you because our food is all dedicated to the Lord. It's all Corbin. And they would say Corbin on everything. And remember, they don't have retirement funds in the first century. When parents got old and they needed to be taken care of, it was the kid's job to honor them and take care of them in their old age. Just like when you're a little kid, your parents took care of you. And it goes to the other side at the other end of life. So this idea of Corbin is, well, I can't do anything for you. And you err on the side of completely neglecting your parents because it's all Corbin. I've dedicated that. Um, So this is not some obscure command to wash hands properly. This is a core one of the Ten Commandments. So Jesus comes back with a far worse offense. Uh, And the commandment is, honor your father and mother as the Lord has commanded you that your days might be long, that it might be well with you in the land which your Lord is giving you. Your days are long because your kids will take care of you too. And they'll extend your life by providing for you in old age. The idea is the older you get, the harder it is to keep your body going and make an income. So you rely on your kids and that the Jewish people as a tradition that help, this keeps the wise old people around in your community. Not only that, you now have more babysitters in your community. Like it's, it's better for raising kids because you get grandparents, frankly, are better with kids than parents are sometimes. So you get this idea that the elderly have more memory, more wisdom, and God wants that in the community. So he makes a command that's not just healthy for the community, it's healthy for us. If we take care of our parents, we're modeling something for our kids to take care of us when we get older. So we take care of them. Scribes would say they don't have time to do that because their time, their resources, their wealth, it's all Corbin. If they stop scribing that scripture out, then it won't get done and we'll lose the word of God. So the parents are just going to have to suffer. So this is tough. This idea is that you avoid the hard work of keeping God's law by creating a human-made vow. And then your vow, which is noble in its intent, I'm going to dedicate things to the Lord. There's nothing wrong with that. But then your vow suddenly takes precedence over God's command. And this is a, a really difficult situation because you've got a conflict of two good vows that bump into each other. And to sort those out, Jesus is given a pretty heavy teaching right here. God's law prioritizes your duty. Super clear in the Old Testament. Your heart first, your family second, and and you move inward to outward, then service. So God would never have somebody abandon someone to starvation and death in order to serve in the temple. No way. And we see examples of that. So this idea that, that... It's an inward to outward kind of responsibility. If you're screwed up, you can't help your family. You need to get yourself straightened out. If your family's screwed up, you can't really serve the church. Don't feel obligated to serve the church. Take care of your family. So there's this kind of idea here that Jesus is challenging that they think their service to the temple is more important than taking care of their parents. It's not. So... We were talking to somebody this week who isn't part of our fellowship, and she said um, this idea that serving the church would be some kind of a have to, that if you go to a church, you have to do things. And I actually challenged her a little bit. I'm like, actually, there are many people that go into a church, and they need to just be blessed. They need the word of God. They need the worship. They need the fellowship of the saints. They need some good barbecue because they got to just get their heart right. And that's super important. It's, it's, it's not a small thing. And the church should be a place you can come for shelter. And I started saying, the Lord said, come unto me, those who are heavy burdened. Like, that's not come to me and get to work, right? There is a point where the outpouring of the Spirit is what blesses the church. But we have people that come to church and they're tired and they're wore out and they're exhausted and they're anxious and they're fearful and they're angry. And those are things that have to be, we got to let the Lord just wash that out of them. And that might take six months, might take three years. I don't know. It's going to take as long as the Holy Spirit takes. But that idea that when you come to church, you have to do something, that's a tradition of men. That's not the law of God. The law of God is he created cities of refuge where people could go when they're on the verge of death. And they could run to those cities and get shelter. 
So the mercy and the grace of God gets lost when we have human vows. Well, I vowed to the Lord that I'd be at every single church service ever for the rest of my life if the Lord would do this. Well, that's a human vow. There's nothing wrong with it. But if that gets in the way of other things, well, let's sort out, well, I can't break my vow. Well, you can when it gets in the way of one of God's commands, you sure can. Like, think about that. Where's your obligation and where's your duty? Get your heart so that you, the Shema, you serve the Lord with your whole heart, mind, and soul. And if that's not in the right place, give yourself a break. You don't, you're not obligated to do anything else. Serve the Lord with your whole heart, mind, and soul. Get that right first, and then you can start adding obligations later. So this is a, this is a game the scribes are playing that, that completely bypasses the law. And then Jesus doesn't stop teaching. And I think this is the best thing in the world. And when he called all the multitude to himself, it's like he turns away from the scribes and Pharisees and he wants every, want everybody else to get this. Their hearts are hard on this topic. But he wants the rest of us to get this next thing. When he called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear me, everyone, and understand. There's nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he's entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. I think 17 is an odd sentence. It's not really a parable, is it? Like, anyways. So he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside can't defile him? Because it doesn't enter his heart, but his stomach, and it's eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, what comes out of a man, what, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, and evil eye. Blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and they defile a man. Jesus applies a biblical truth of hand washing and that God cares about the heart. He cares about your spirit. He cares about where you're at. Verses 14 and 15 aren't really a parable, parable but they, they see it because it's just hard to get this idea. Food choice, hand washing, don't defile you. Those sorts of practices may be good. They might even be like hygienic. Right? There might be value to some of these things, but they're not the things that God cares about. He cares about your spirit. This is a belief that, that Peter needs a, a dream to undo, right? That Gentiles aren't unclean. Some think they can do anything in the world because it's outside of their spirit, and that again bypasses God's law. This isn't to say you can do anything. Like, I can, I can go into... Yeah, anyways... It's not an excuse to do anything you want, right? It's, I can, I can, we live in an era with a lot more things you can put into your body other than the food that Jesus is talking about here. When they were talking about unclean food, they were talking about pork versus beef. Today, we can put a lot of things into our body like heroin. That's something that's a whole different conversation and I'd go to different things. Jesus is talking about human traditions and those traditions not being the things that make you good or evil. It's your heart that makes you good or evil. And then he goes on to list all of these things to the heart. Evil thoughts. Frankly, there's 13 things on the list. I don't know if that's why 13 becomes an unlucky number. Just a thought. But evil thoughts are things that you can't hide forever. If what's going on in your head is evil all the time, it eventually comes out. And all of these things, if this is what your heart's at, you become the thing your heart goes after. And the thing that you want, the thing that you pursue, actually becomes who you are. And it will come out. An evil eye, I thought that was an interesting thing on the list. Like, what's an evil eye? Like, what is that? And then it, it actually is, it's a tradition in the Middle East. Uh, it's still a thing in the Middle East, but it is a way to look at somebody that shows extreme disdain for them and judgment of them. So it is that little old lady looking out her window that stares at you with that evil eye. That's exactly what it is. That is as, is as bad as anything else on the list. And the evil eye has a spiritual connotation to it. Egyptians, Sumerian, and, and Assyrians all believe that an evil eye came with a curse. And this is the tradition that, and, and it was largely something that women would give to men. It would be, I look, and it came with a curse. So Mike was mentioning this before we started the teaching today. I was laughing inside because I'm like, we're actually going to be talking about evil eyes today. 
but they're serious. It puts yourself above God's opinion of that person. My attitude towards that person is more important than that person. So when we curse people and we think lower, all of these things in this list, obviously adultery and fornications against the Ten Commandments, murdering somebody, thieving, covetousness, all in the Ten Commandments, wickedness in general, deceit, lewdness, just to be lewd, to be vulgar, like that's not good. That's something in your head that's coming out your mouth. But an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. Foolishness is on the list. That's not in the Ten Commandments. But Jesus is like, these are the things that come out when all you focus on is empty stuff. What comes out of your mouth is foolishness. Blasphemy, speaking something untrue about God and contradicting his promises, his word, his nature. Where you're meant to represent God and then you say things that don't represent God. That's bad. So Jesus gives us a list of things we shouldn't be doing there. So far, Jesus has traveled entirely within Israel. He's gone to Jewish cities. He's talked to Jewish people. And then he's been going into these cities that are ceremonially clean. The practices of location are things that are also part of the tradition of the elders. A good Jewish person would never go into a Gentile city and eat food, ever. You'd rather fast than go into that city to eat food. You do business at the gates. You don't have to go into the Gentile city because the Gentile cities, they're not clean people. They're disgusting. They smell, right? So they would have all these traditions. What does Jesus do in response to the hand washing? He arose and he went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He goes right to Gentile cities. And he turned, and, and again, he's teaching his disciples, but then he's modeling it too. The Tyre and Sidon in verse 24, that's a 50-mile hike. That's not a small like just the next city in line. He goes out of his way to make a point of going into a Gentile city. Most of his ministry will stay in Israel because he's called to Israel. But in this instance, he leaves to kind of counteract this point of the Pharisees and the scribes. So verse 24, from there he arose and went into a region of Tyre and Sidon and he entered a house and he wanted no one to know about it. But he could not be hidden because you can't hide Jesus. At this point in his ministry... Jesus is Jesus, and everybody sees what he's doing. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him. Unclean city, unclean house, unclean spirit, and she came and fell at his feet. And the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth. There's an emphasis there, not just one of the good Alexander Greeks, but one of the crude, unkept, poor Syrophoenician Greeks, the salty sailor types. Right? She comes from that class of Greeks. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Please get the demon out of my daughter. But Jesus said to her, this is some people really struggle with this passage. Let the children be filled first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to little dogs. Ouch. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. This is Timber's favorite verse. Then he said to her, for this saying, go your way, the demon's gone out of your daughter. And when she come home to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. Wow. The problem with hand-washing religiosity is you forget there's people out there with way worse problems. Jesus goes straight to one and fixes the problem. This is like one of the coolest passages. We have this symbol of Jesus erasing the line between clean and unclean because that which is in Jesus Christ makes purity. It goes that direction. Jesus can't be made impure because what's in his heart is pure. And as is the case with believers that are living out their faith. He wanted nobody to know it, right? Read this as a lesson for the disciples. He's trying to make it not be a big show, but it's a big show anyways, and the disciple sees that. He can't hide it when he's doing it the right way. It just comes out naturally. It's When you try to tell the gospel, you can't really hide the gospel if what's in your heart is good news. If what's in your heart is still a storm, you've got to get deal with the storm before you have to oblige yourself with any kind of ministry. But what's in Jesus' heart is not a storm, it's peace. We've seen that. And he desires for his disciples to see that once that peace is in your heart, you can't stop yourself. People will see Jesus. He's not trying to aggravate anybody. He's trying to show a principle here. And that is what comes out of a heart that's healthy is healthy stuff. 
So he couldn't be hidden because it's Jesus. Verse 25, for a woman, specifically a Greek woman, even worse than that, a Sinophoenician woman, known for their idol worship. She is not Jewish. She does not worship Yahweh, but she recognizes the power of Jesus. Think about that. You don't have to be in a particular denomination to understand the power of Jesus. So in the same sense that we, we, we think about that today, there's no right or wrong denomination. There's only a right or wrong understanding of the power of Jesus Christ and if you're going to follow him. There are people going to heaven, believe it or not, that come from a multitude of Christian denominations. And there are going to be people that serve the Lord. But these folks, these Syrophoenicians, you know, they commonly practiced overt cruel racism to other people. They commonly ate and did sacrifices they, the, the Romans were on board with all this. Um, they would do it publicly. They were considered dogs by the Jews. They were called dogs by the Jews. So Jesus is using a racist term, only he softens it just a little bit. He calls her a little dog, right? It's like instead of saying a pig, you call somebody a piglet. You're just a little piglet. But when you call somebody a pig, that has a lot different connotation to it. So he softens a little bit, but he uses the same term that was commonly used by Jews against the Syrophoenicians and other such groups of people. So a really interesting passage. They've, she falls at his feet and she keeps asking. She's doing exactly what Jesus has shown the disciples he wants to see, faith. Just trust me. Just come ask for help. We keep asking God. There's a persistence in her asking. She keeps asking. He's ignoring her to start out with, but what he rewards is the persistence. So we can learn something about how to pray from that. We don't pray and expect it to be answered the first time. It's really great when it's answered the first time, but we pray with persistence. And the more desperate the need, the more persistent the prayer. And I think this is one of the things we keep asking, not because God lacks the power to do it on the first try, but because God has something he's doing that we need to trust that he, we have total confidence that God can do it. This is an interesting thing when we pray for physical health ailments, when we pray for emotional and mental health things, God can heal it right now. But I don't know what God's doing and what his plan is. I don't know what that person needs to go through to prepare them for ministry that they might have in 10 years. So I pray with the full confidence that God can heal immediately, but I also have the faith that God's going to heal in his own time. It's an interesting way to pray. He casts the Cast the demon out is the request that's being made here. He's cast a lot of demons out. Chapters 1 through 6, Mark has told us about a ton of demons getting cast out. He cast out Legion, which was many, many demons. 2,000 demons. So it's common for Jesus to cast out demons, but Jesus is making a point here, and he stops and reflects an attitude that likely all his disciples also had. For sure, the scribes and Pharisees that are following him around, they've already demonstrated this judgmental attitude. Let the children be filled first. This is talking about Israel. The promise of God was Messiah would come to Israel, the children of God first, and then to the Gentiles. So he's not contradicting the Old Testament. He's actually saying, hey, I'm supposed to come to the Jews first. That was the promise. They carried God's word and scriptures forward for 3,000 years. God blessed them by bringing Messiah from within their people. Jesus didn't want his followers to dismiss the scribes. He wanted them to dismiss their own prejudice also and get rid of the scribes are talking about cleaning hands, but you guys hate the Sinophoenicians. Let's deal with that. Is Jesus being cruel here? This is where people struggle. Is he just being mean to this lady for the sake of being mean? Is he purposefully trying to show cruelty and legalism to this woman that he's going to stick to this Jews first only thing and not just have grace and mercy when needed? Clearly, he's never going to deny this person mercy. And he's going to, even though the Bible says, wash your hands, that doesn't mean to come in and attack a fellowship of saints that aren't doing ceremonial cleansing. In the exact same way, the Bible says the Messiah will come first to the Jews, but that doesn't mean that Jesus can't heal somebody who's not a Jew. So there's this idea of God desires mercy, not sacrifice. That's also in the Old Testament. And that's a command that we're supposed to be showing mercy says, let the children be filled first. So you look at all these things, and he's showing the disciples the kind of faith that this person has. The use of the, the little dogs there, again, he's using a different word than dog. The, the word for dog is kion. It gets used multiple times through the New Testament. But Jesus uses 
kinarion, which is a far more affectionate term. It's the word that a kid would use with their puppy. It's not what you'd use with a dog on the street. And he uses this phrase, I think, to invite the woman into conversation. He's not pushing her away, but he is kind of playing with the language around how Jews judge these people. So she answers him. That's beautiful. It actually works. She doesn't just go running away crying, saying, Jesus hates me. She actually feels like they're entering into a little bit of a verbal sparring match here. There's some playfulness to how Jesus approaches it. Being somebody who studied play and education, I love this passage. Jesus is toying with her a little bit. Good teachers do this with kids all the time. They come up and ask a dumb question, and you don't just say that's a dumb question. You play with them a little bit, and you can have some fun with it. And it, what you're doing is you're inviting them into a relationship when you do that, using good humor, good, good temper in this moment. And she answered him and said, and she uses the same phrase that Jesus responded to with the scribes. Did you notice that? He uses the same phrase used when Jesus responded to the scribes. She has quick wit. She has humor. She has humility. She has faith. I like this lady. And she has persistent to show that this is what's inside of her is a good heart. She's actually able to embrace all these things because what's inside of her is fairly clean. And when she cares more about her daughter than herself, there's no impure thoughts in this woman. She's doing whatever she can do to help her daughter. That's a pure thought. That's a good thing. So she isn't pushed away by his authority. She's not pushed away by righteousness. On her, her head is a absolutely unclean Gentile on the outside with a clean heart on the inside. Back in Israel... They had an, a, a clean Jewish person with an unclean heart on the inside. And these two stories absolutely go together. So she uses the same word. Even little dogs get crumbs. And I just think that's so playful. And it is, it's true in this household. So she notes her, he, she doesn't deny her outward condition. She doesn't even reject or argue with him about the word dogs. Even puppies get crumbs. Can I just get a crumb? That a crumb from Jesus is better than a whole meal from other people. She even lowers herself more, and I like this humility. He says, I shouldn't be dealing with little dogs. She says, even little dogs under the table. So she lowers herself another step from just a dog on the street, further um, humbling herself, not humiliating herself, humbling herself. The faith plus persistence plus humility, what a great place to start if you want to get yourself right with God. Faith plus persistence plus humility. The children's crumbs, perhaps, you know, she's playfully poking Jesus a little bit that way there by calling him a child, you know, maybe. And we know that Jesus also teaches, bring the children unto me. So accepting the idea, giving Christ priority, prioritizing God's chosen people outside the ministry. I think she said the children's crumb because in her head was an image of a puppy getting fed by a kid because the kid can't resist the little puppy dog eyes. But I think, Holy Spirit-wise, this is a lesson for the disciples, the children of God. It's a lesson for all people that call themselves children of God to show mercy where mercy is due. Our job is not to judge the outside of a person, but to look at the heart and what's on the inside. You can have people that come into fellowship and they pretend that they're the holiest person in the world, but what's in their heart is just sick. But you can have people that from the outside look like the scuzziest, nasty thing ever, but what's in their heart is, I got to change. I want to get closer to the Lord. And it's really tough in the church to not judge and to just say what's in the heart. So for this saying, Jesus says, for this saying, you're going to get healed. He, from Jesus' side, he just made a 50-mile walk to hear her say those words in front of his disciples for this saying. In other words, he made the trip for that single interaction. That's Jesus' heart. The demon goes out. Clearly, Jesus can heal. The power's not in doubt here. He doesn't need to do any sort of physical motion. He doesn't need to do some magic incantation like the Talmud and the Mishnah described for the Pharisees. He, doesn't, he does the least amount of work with the same outcome of the demon getting cast out. So not even a word, not even a touch. His power is omnipresent, doesn't need to be there to do it. 
and they call on him whenever he's away physically. So again, remember last week with the boat, the first time they're in the boat, Jesus is in the boat with them. The second time they're in the boat, he's not in the boat with them. And they should have learned to call for him in either situation. And what he's demonstrating here is he doesn't have to be physically present for his power to move forward. And for us as believers, he doesn't have to be incarnated in the room with us for his power to be active anywhere on this planet. What comes out of a person is what defiles them, not what goes into the person. Her prayer is short, it's simple, it's humble, it's persistent, it's faith-assuming, it's hopeful, it's trusting, and it's direct. We can learn how to pray from this woman. Lord, help me. Like, that's it. That's not a lie. If we pray for other people, we can pray the same way. Super simple. Lord, help that person. Save us. Do your thing. Those short, simple prayers, Jesus honors them and Jesus deals with them. And they're, at, they're just as good as a big, elaborate Pharisee prayer. There's no more power or less power in how fancy of words we use in our prayers. Just wanted to make that point. She has no idea what Jewish tradition is, yet God responds to her just as well. Jesus allows the struggle, he gets into the conversation with her, to draw out her faith before answering the prayer. I think that's the essential mortar to the church. We go through struggles because it pulls out our faith. The scribes travel out to Galilee to attack Jesus. He travels out to the Gentile world to heal people. See the difference in their hearts? If we're going to go anywhere, let's go places to heal people and help people. Jesus heals a a deaf mute person. Uh, It starts with the word again, so let's keep this connected to those other stories. Again, verse 31. Departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Decapolis is an area of 10 cities. Now he's on the southeast shore of the lake. So these are all Greek cities. They're considered Gentile cities. So he's still in Greek areas. Then he brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment of speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears, (laughs) and and he spat and touched his tongue, And then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Aphathia, that is, be opened. So verse 32 has deaf and an impediment of speech. So he's not, a lot of people say he's deaf and mute, like your Bible might have that in the title. It doesn't say he's mute. It says he has an impediment of speech. This is really common with people that are hard of hearing and deaf. Um, that if you can't hear yourself, your your language gets, your tongue gets a little sloppy because you can't hear your own tongue. So this impediment of speech didn't necessarily meant that he was mute. It just meant he was there. Um, it implies that um, still being deaf and not being able to speak very well is something that would be considered a curse by God in the first century. It was something that wasn't, we didn't, they didn't have the medical framework for it, so they often treated it as something that was an unclean spirit. What does ministry look like? Those that don't know, the Gentiles, this is a very particular description of it. And, I, and I, it's interesting that we get more detail on this particular miracle than most miracles, like the process of it. With the woman, there is no process. With him, there's finger poking, there's tongue licking, there's all sorts of different things, all of which break all of the unclean rules that the Jews had. Like, and, and frankly, they break our unclean rules too. If I put my finger in your ears, I do not put them on my tongue. Like this is disgusting. But I think that's the point. He's showing them I can be pure as the son of God and these things don't make me impure. They're gross, but they're not something that's going to make his soul in danger of damnation. He takes them aside in verse 33. Again, if we're looking at this through this, just the idea of great evangelism, Notice that he gets to one-on-one, and he does this often, right? He pulls them aside, individual attention. Jesus takes the time to be personal with people, really personal with this guy. Jesus seems to do things differently with everybody he meets. Have you noticed that? This one is really different. But Jesus doesn't act the same with the same people. So when we think of ministry, and especially evangelism, if you get to know people individually, you're going to evangelize to them differently because you're going to see what they need. And you're going to treat them differently. And that makes a lot of sense. Like, it makes just good social skills. Get to know people, do that. This eliminates the danger of legalism. If you realize with every individual, I have to respond the way the Holy Spirit's telling me to respond. You can't really come up with a method or a practice or a handbook of the seven steps to win somebody to the faith. You have to just respond to what's there. 
Because of that variety, the disciples are not able to follow a method after Jesus' teaching. They have to follow Jesus. The Holy Spirit has to guide them in what to do. So I love this. So let's get into the weirdness of this one. He puts his finger in his ears. That's not necessary, and it's not needed. So the question has to be, why put fingers in ears? And I'm going to suggest there's some imagery here. If we're dealing with somebody who doesn't believe, individual attention is step one. Step two is stop the garbage going into their head. Right? If I put fingers even in a deaf person's ears, the world can't get in anyways. So what's going to go into their ears immediately after being restored will not be what the world has for them to hear. And in that sense, it stops like the enemy from snatching it away. Just a thought that there is a flood of garbage, uncleanness that's coming into our heads every day. And the closer we get to Jesus' return, the more absolutely prevalent that garbage gets. Think of even 50 years ago. Like the most they had was you had to turn on a radio to hear things from the world. Now it's in our pocket buzzing at us constantly. It's TV, it's radio, it's podcasts, it's media, it's billboards, it's shopping malls. Everywhere you go, the world's telling you what they think you should be doing and what they think you should be buying and how you should be living. And what'll make you happy, by the way. They happen to tell you that a lot. So he stops that spiritual garbage from going into the deaf person. He gets, here's another thing that the ear might, this could be a possible thing. That would definitely get their attention, wouldn't it? By doing something different, this deaf person's probably had a lot of people try to heal their deafness, but nobody has stuck their fingers in his ears. Like, that would be a unique experience for him to have. So I like the idea that when I'm going to evangelize or get to know somebody, maybe doing something that's completely different just to get their attention, that this isn't a normal interaction anymore. And I love those kinds of things. I love those kinds of questions, right? Are you a believer? That's not what people ask me when I first, first meet you. And if they say yes, you're like, where do you go to church? What do you do? You go right to those topics. Well, that's different. That's a, nobody interacts with me like that. And if they're not a believer, you're like, why not? What's wrong with you? you know? and, and as the Holy Spirit leads, again, that's not a method, right? But there is just, what can I do to like shake up a normal interaction with this person? So for Jesus, that's literally sticking his finger in his ears. That would get a deaf person's attention pretty quickly. He's dealing with somebody that isn't like everybody else. He spat and touched his tongue. What did he spit on? Is he spitting on his fingers? Because they just went in the ears. Is he spitting on the ground? Either way, he then touches his tongue, but his fingers used to be in his ears, so maybe the fingers came out, and he spat on his fingers and then put them in their mouth, which would be the mixed flavor of non-brushed teeth, saliva, and earwax. And he touches his tongue. Or is he spitting and touching the tongues, and this isn't chronological, and he spat, then put the fingers in the ear, which is what we call a wet willy, right? (laughs) So is he doing that? Really? It's not me, it's the word of God. I'm just, it's just the messenger. So here's where this comes from. In the first century, they saw spit as a cleaning agent. So we think of this as a little weirder than it would be in that era. We still have some of these wives' tales around today. There are people that believe that a dog's saliva is cleansing. So if you get a wound, you should let the dog lick your wound. That's not true. Use hot water to clean the wound. We don't use dog spit to do it, but dog spit was cleaner than possible bacterial infection. And the same was true then. If you have a wound that's getting infected, it is better to lick it out and get new bacteria in there than to leave that stuff festering. Does this make sense? So I think this is interesting because if Jesus is the word of God, the healing starts when the word of God, the cleansing of his own spit, is happening, and he's using current medicinal techniques. So this is interesting. We get a lot of people that debate how much should we trust doctors How much should we be doing what doctors say? Jesus is actually using a current medicinal technique by using spit, and he's not afraid to use medicine to do this image of purification. Uh, To us, it looks fairly weird. To the disciples, it looks like he's practicing medicine. So I don't think we should be afraid of modern medicine, especially that. And frankly, Jesus knows that it was not 
going to do anything. Like, spit doesn't help people get undeaf. And Jesus knew that, but he's still showing them modern, like, let's try normal medicine first and see if it works. The very least, you got Jesus' word, what's on his tongue, going into his ears. That's absolutely symbolic. Get to know somebody individually. Do something that's a little different. Put the words of Jesus in your ears and let it go that way. And then he looks up to heaven. Fourth thing. There is a prayer element that we can try modern medicine and that's great, but modern medicine doesn't heal the spirit. So he prays in addition to doing the modern medicine. They know God's word. They know what it says. The scribes knew God's word, but they didn't know God. Jesus know God's word and he does know God. And he shows how he prays. Here it's quiet, quietly. The only part the disciples seem to hear is the last word. So God prays in this way. Again, Jesus doesn't pray the same way every time, but he does here. So he uses the modern spit medicine, and then he knows that God has to be there to heal too. That healing won't happen without God. So the physical motion tells the deaf, deaf person something different's going on, but the prayer is happening there um, also. I think he looks to heaven because he's still teaching his disciples. Jesus could do this directly, but he's showing his disciples that it's God that's going to heal this person. And the incarnated God allows the not incarnated God to do the work so the disciples can see how it goes. And then five, he sighs. The Greek word there is for a groan or an audible exhale. It is often associated with praying. Paul says he groaned in the spirit, uses the same Greek word. So I think that this Greek, this word has meaning here. Some of the prayer for Jesus is looking up to heaven. It's quiet. But the groan implies that some of the prayer was out loud. So it's private, but there's also this personal, intimate thing. But there's also the idea that there's some compassion here and the praying happens in different ways. There's no right way to do it. There's no right way to eat your food by cleansing your hands. There's no right way to actually heal people. Early disciples pick up on this groan language and they often use it. Uh, one example is, in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. So we see that word get used again. And then he says, aphathia, that is, be opened. Jesus is then praying with words that can be understood. First it's silent, first it's, then it's a groan, then it's words that are understood, and it's two words in English, one word in Aramaic. Our deaf, impeded bodies are, can be a spiritual drag, right? Every time our back gets out of place or our toe gets stubbed or we get a cold, it is okay for us to pray for each other to get healed, even in those mundane things. Mark translates all of this for the Roman audience because he wants them to understand the prayer was super simple. Just be opened. Lord, open, the, open up their ears. It's personal. He stops the flow of garbage, gets his attention. He, Jesus purifies it with his own tongue. Then there's prayer, and then there's the body speaking out those prayers for other people asking for it. Honestly, if we're looking for healing, evangelism, how we treat each other in the church, that's not a bad list of things that came out in that story. That said, it's always different, so please don't feel obligated to put your finger in other people's ears. I don't think that's the point of this story. Um, I'm surprised there's been no sect of, like, earpluggers out there. Like, you, Christ, there's some weird Christians out there that take unique verses and do weird things, but we've yet to see that community of people pop up. Verse 35, we'll wrap up the chapter. Immediately his ears were opened. That answers the prayer. And the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. And then he commanded them that they should tell no one, but the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. So Jesus doesn't have to promote himself, but the promotion still happens. I think that's a really cool, that is, you know, you see a lot of Christian leaders that like to promote themselves, but God doesn't need that for promotion to happen. God will promote the people he chooses to. Verse 37, and they were astonished beyond measure saying, he has done all things well. He makes both the deaf hear and the mute to speak. Um, again, the same word impediment there is being in, being in use in verse 35. This answers a prophecy that Mark isn't pointing out to the Roman audience. 
Isaiah 35, 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. That's the Hebrew word for opened. And the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb, Mogilalian, shall sing. For the waters shall burst forth from the wilderness and the streams in the desert. Verse 37 paraphrases the text um, and Mark's using it. And I think this is the thing. He's not using it for his Roman readers to understand that he's quoting the scriptures, but he's using it because what's in his heart is the scriptures. It's a great example of if that's what you filled your heart with, that's what comes out of your mouth. We had great examples of this. Like we were doing some counseling this week with a couple and it was like every other sentence. I'm not quoting chapter and verse, but what's coming out is Bible verses. And they're paraphrased and they're not perfect. When Steph quotes them, they're usually spot on. When I quote them, they're, you know, in the right ballpark. Mark quotes it in the right ballpark. It's not that Peter was doing it spot on, word for word. When Matthew quotes things, they're often word to word. In other words, it's different. Different people do it different way, but what's coming out of his heart is the word of God. This, so it paraphrases it. Jesus has power and authority that exceeds the Mishnah and the Talmud. His power and authority it defies them, and then it still goes, even though he didn't wash his hands right, he still casts out a demon and heals the deaf. So the scribes come in and say, you're unclean, which means you can't possibly be doing anything good, and then Jesus goes off and does two good things and spits on himself while he's doing it. And showing that it has nothing, it backs up everything that he said. Jesus' power and authority exceeds the expectation and opinions of other people. We follow Jesus, we don't follow the wiles of human beings. That's such a tough idea to get across for some people. Should tell no one, but he commanded them and then it gets proclaimed. I just love the fact that it goes out. Jesus never attempts to bring attention to himself. He doesn't want the circus. He pulls himself off to be individual with people and get to know people individually. I always take great heart in the fact that Jesus really discipled 12 people. He taught thousands, but he discipled about 12. And if Jesus does 12, if I can even do one or two, if I can even be a decent dad to my two kids, that's a pretty good, I'm not God. I'm not going to probably be able to disciple 12 people. But if I can disciple a handful here and there, that's a good thing. And it's a good work. The crops grow without any effort once the seed sets and it's in good soil. It says Jesus has done all things well. And I don't, I just want to end on that. Like we shouldn't race past that line. Jesus does all things well. Jesus doesn't do anything halfway. And when he casts out this demon and he heals the deaf person, it, he does it well. He doesn't do it partway or halfway. He does it perfectly. He doesn't do it the way the scribes and Pharisees think he should do it, but he still does it. He doesn't just reject the scribes and Pharisees. He shows his heart for healing. He doesn't just attack the icky people. He actually loves the good, pure-hearted people. I think that's really cool because my temptation is I want to bicker with the nasty people. But Jesus, he rejects them and walks away from them, and then he does great and good things to the people that are godly. He ignores the Talmud, but pays close attention to the Old Testament. He didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill the law. That's why the scribes miss this entirely, is that Jesus does all things well, even ignoring the human traditions. We can try to do this too. If anything, we do it to the extent of our abilities so that God glories in the impact of beyond our abilities. We do what we can. We do what God's given us eyes to see and ears to hear. You come into a fellowship of believers and you look around and say, what needs to get done? And we do what we can. And we don't, we're not obligated to do any more than that. We're not ab obligated to do anything if our heart's not ready to do it. But we do all things well and we do them to the glory of God. Not feeling an extensive burden, but also not letting ourselves off the hook when we're in a good place and we're ready to do it. So... If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. Speak because the word of God is in your heart and you know what it says. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability that God supplies. That in all things, God might be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion and the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, help us to release ourselves from human traditions even our own where we've told ourselves we have to do this and we have to do that 
Lord, may we just be free from the bondage of sin and death and legalism. And may we walk away from it. And Lord, may we, instead of that, may we seek after what you've told us to do, which is to love the Lord with our heart, mind, and soul, even in our pain, even in our struggles. Lord, help us to just do that. Lord, even if we don't feel like praying, worshiping, studying your word, being in fellowship, Lord, help us to just reach out with one or two words and say, Lord, help me. Help me to do this thing today. Um, We're not told to be joyful. We're told to rejoice and put that on even if we don't feel it. So Lord, when our hearts are heavy, help us to just be persistent and pray for healing and pray for help that that unclean spirit can be cleaned. And Lord, may it be done in your power and in your glory so that you get all the glory because we don't know how to clean it. Lord, you're the only hope that we have. You're the way, you're the truth, and you're the life. So Lord, may we follow you and persistently do it. Lord, may we be open to having our ears closed to the world and our ears opened to your word and the purifying effect of the word of God in our hearts every week. Lord, not just Mark chapter 7, but Mark chapter 8 and 9 and 10. There's a cumulative effect where you wash us clean in your word. So Lord, help us to do that, to do it faithfully, and Lord, to be um, honorable to you. Lord, we bring almost nothing to the table except for our heart that we know that you have the power to heal, you have the power to save, and we put all of our trust in your word and in your will because you have been faithful through all of history. And so, Lord, we don't have an empty or a foolish or an abstract faith. We have faith that you will do what you say because you're God and you've demonstrated your faithfulness. Lord, I pray this week as we go out of our fellowship together that we see that. Lord, that as we ask you for things and pray for them, uh, that you reveal to us to further cement our faith in you, that you are faithful in all things. You do heal. You are the great healer and protector of our minds and our bodies, Lord, and we just pray for your grace and your blessing in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.